We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning and happy Monday. It is the month of December now, and so I hope that everyone is in a very holly jolly uh, mood, even though we do talk about the news of the day and politics, which uh, sometimes are not so holly jolly, but we can, of course, always have the spirit of the season, which is to recognize that God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. And um, I was celebrating Christmas uh, yesterday with some friends at the candlelight celebration um, at Epcot, and it was just a wonderful time to sing um, the 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 songs and the carols that truly are just amazing theology that uh, we can express the goodness of the Lord and the miracle of salvation, and that uh, God sent His only Son. Uh, to us for the purpose of redemption, and we should always have hope in this season and spread uh, the joy of the season. So, um, so not as much joy for some people in Washington. The House on Friday voted to expel Representative George Santos, who is the Republican from New York, from Congress, an action that the chamber had taken only five times in U.S. history. This comes as a response to an array of alleged crimes and ethical lapses that came to light after the freshman lawmaker was found to have fabricated key parts of his biography. There were also some campaign finance issues going on, and this according to the Washington Post. And um, interestingly, the Republican uh, pushback from from some of the base and some of the media has been, well, if we're going to expel George Santos, then what about everyone else that is on the Democrat side that has uh, ethical lapses and has other things that are brought to to their attention? And I think that's a really good point to say that if uh, the the House is willing to expel George Santos, what about some of these other members? And in fact, Senator uh, Fetterman from Pennsylvania said on, I believe it was The View, um, that Menendez should be expelled from the Senate as well if we're going to expel George Santos. And I agree with that. Uh, but one of the, and, and so we should hold everyone accountable regardless of party, but just because Democrats aren't being expelled doesn't mean that Republicans shouldn't clean up their own house quite literally as well. And some of the pushback uh, was that this is disenfranchising the voters that elected him in New York because there hadn't been a conviction in a court of law or an adjudication by a judicial arbiter. But those types of responses, we always have to go back to the U.S. Constitution and see what the rule book says. And so Article 1, Section 5, and this is Section 5.2, shows us what the Constitution actually says about expulsion. And so this is Section 5.2. It says each House, so the House and the Senate, 
may determine the rules of its proceedings, punish its members for disorderly behavior, and with the concurrence of two-thirds, expel a member. So the Constitution does not say that this is disenfranchisement of voters. There doesn't have to be an adjudication from a judicial arbiter. The judicial branch has nothing whatsoever to do with the House, the legislative branch, on the federal level in Article 1, taking care of its own members. And so each house determines its own rules of proceedings, and it can punish its members. It has specific textual constitutional power for determining what disorderly behavior means in that context. The Constitution doesn't define it. It just says that the House may determine uh, to punish its members for disorderly behavior and on a two-thirds concurrence, expel a member. And then uh, that state and that district has to then uh, determine a replacement. And and that happens uh, depending on the state and the district. And so, you know, what happens to George Santos's seat, we can talk about that. But this isn't disenfranchisement. And so we can't try to manipulate um, some of the, I mean, this doesn't all go back to the voters. This goes back ultimately to the Constitution. And so for conservatives, when we are debating and discussing these issues, we always should bring it back to the rule book. And if we want the rule book to be applied equally and fairly to all members and say, hey, some of these Democrats, uh, like maybe Nancy Pelosi and some of these others that have had ethical, questionable behavior, we should consider expelling them on the same rules. That is a fair argument. But to suggest somehow that we should circumvent the Constitution and not go back to the actual textual language uh, really is unbecoming of conservatives. So we always have to go back and listen and look and listen and pay attention to our U.S. Constitution and the rule book. And and it gives Congress authority to expel George Santos. They have exercised that power. Sure, maybe it's only happened five times before in U.S. history, but the Constitution says that they can do it. They have that power. They determined on the two-thirds concurrence. So here we are. Uh, joining me now to discuss this further and the political fallout of the expulsion of uh, Representative George Santos is our good friend Pedro Gonzalez. And he is a uh, independent journalist on Substack. You can find him at readcontra.com and also on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter. So, Pedro, um, let's, you know, so th- that's the constitutional analysis, but uh, let's also talk about the political fallout. Uh, what exactly happens now that George Santos has been expelled? Is this a good thing for Republicans with such a slim majority? John, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm in this weird position where I'm, I'm kind of looking at this from the seat of, of someone who has for the longest time repeated many of, this, of the same lines that you're hearing from from pundits on, I guess, the more popular side of thing, and, and I guess some of the, the things that you might hear from the grassroots, which is this this um, this idea that well, you know, Democrats never do this to their own, and the reason that we do this sort of thing to our own um, is why we lose, and and therefore, you know, the, the conclusion that we should draw from that is the Republicans are not real fighters, and there somehow that seems to suggest that. Santos was a real fighter, but it, it's just nonsense. I, there is really no benefit of defending someone like Santos, in my view, because 
it's hard to think of of anything good that that type of person um, has done for the the GOP or the conservative movement. I guess what I'm saying is is that I think we've gotten so dug in into this idea of like you know we have to beat the Democrats by becoming like them that we're, we're acting like them in the worst sense uh, of that concept. Um, that we're, we're sort of just embracing at times the thuggishness of the Democratic Party without even getting the results, if that makes sense. And that's kind of where I'm at, because, again, you're hearing this so much. And, and you, you touched on some of this as well in the start, that, you know, like, well, Democrats never do this sort of thing to their own, so we shouldn't. It's like, you're right, that's true. But unfortunately, Democrats also win uh, <laughs> and then get a lot of things done, whereas we don't. And I think with Santos, he was actually kind of aware of this and he would, he would play on it. Um, whatever a new scandal would rear its head, he would say something outrageous, like, you know, this is proof that the, the Chinese communist party is after me. In other words, he would lie to his own supporters in order to try to save his own skin and then also raise money from them, which of course, if you, if you've been following the story, you know that, that the money that he was raising, he would just use it on bizarre things like, Tons of money spent on OnlyFans subscriptions and stuff like that. So, so he was he was very aware of this whole of this narrative that like oh you know we have to beat the Democrats by becoming like them and protecting our own no matter what. He was aware of that and actually using that to exploit to to um, to fleece his own supporters. And this is such a deep problem that I, I, we haven't even had this discussion yet. You know because like you just said you know. The, we have such a slim majority and all that. So what's next? I'm actually thinking that we have to take kind of a step back and think about the state of the GOP right now instead of, um, I guess, the, the the long-term outlook. Yeah. And Peter, I think you raise a really good point that the Democrats are not the standard. And we should not be looking to them to say, well, if they're not doing it, then and expelling their members and holding their members accountable, then then why should we as conservatives? That should never be our standard. And it should also not be the standard that just because uh, the Republicans may not get a two thirds concurrence that they don't with the majority now at least try to go after expulsion of some Democrats. I mean, this should not be. Uh, based on party. It shouldn't matter whether you have a D or an R after your name. If there is actual reason, like there was with the report that came out of the House uh, Ethics Committee for Santos to be expelled, I don't care if he's a Democrat or a Republican. I think he deserved to be expelled, and I applaud the House for doing it. And I would say the same thing if he was a Democrat. It's not just because it, he of what uh, he has the letter he has after his name. And so now, you know, people are speculating and saying, well, because it's New York and this was a district that was uh, that was won by Biden in 2020. You know, this may then have a slimmer majority because under New York law, um, there is a special election that the governor is required to call within 10 days. And then the uh, the special election will happen. I believe it's about 80 or 90 days or 70 to 80 days after the governor's call for one. So the seat will be filled in probably early February by a special election, and that very well could go to Democrats. But we need to be looking at the bigger picture here. And I think you're absolutely right that if Republicans genuinely want to win, 
then we have to look at the rule book, go back to the Constitution, and not just protect our own regardless of what they actually stand for. Because really, was Santos actually really one of our own other than just right. having the R after his name? Right. No. No, he wasn't. And it, th- this is what I mean. I just I, I scratch my head at people that make that argument that, you know, he was one of our own. It's like, what do you mean our own? <laughs> there, there's very, I, I, I don't consider Santos one of my own. Uh, and like I said, the, the, the outrageous part was precisely that in some ways, I have to back up here because you might have heard this before, that, that basically one defense of Santos was that he's sort of just holding up a mirror to the absurdity of the, the, the regime, the establishment, whatever, because it's totally true. You know, so many politicians are corrupt. Um, Bob Menendez is a great example. And like you said, John Fetterman was on the right side of that issue. And he said, you know, um, Bob Menendez has done far worse things. By the way, some of the people that are defending Santos that are among Republicans also defended Bob Menendez for some bizarre reason when uh, when his scandal happened. Very strange. Um, but I think that's worth noting that there were actually Republicans who were defending him, a Democrat, who is, is uh, accused of, of basically using his office um, in exchange for, for, for bribes and things like that uh, to help a foreign government, Egypt. Um, I think that's very bizarre and inappropriate. But anyways, the idea was that Basically, Santos is just, you know, he's just showing us like the real face of, of the whole thing. And, and he's kind of mocking it, which is good. Um, but it's like if you think that through, he's also kind of showing you how ridiculous the GOP has become. Mm-hmm. That we care more about kind of like the we, we care more about what people say rather than what they do. Because that's what Santos is very good at. He was very, very good at kind of figuring out the right things to say. Again, every time a scandal comes up, it's you know, it's the the the, the liberal media is after me, the Chinese Communist Party is after me. I'm they're not after me, or they're not after me, they're after you. I'm just in the way, that sort of thing. Like he was so good at all, he figured it all out very quickly. And so the people that keep saying that sort of thing, like Santos was just, you know, he's just what every other politician is. He's just kind of honest about it, about his corruption or whatever, which is not true, by the way. He's like a pathological liar. Um, He's actually showing you how ridiculous the GOP has become. And, and yeah, what it's, joke it it's, has become. It has become optics over substance. And if someone is good at fighting on television and perpetuating kind of that narrative of I'm fighting back, then we tend to never look deeper than that. And I think that that is a problem. And if we used the power of expulsion, if the House did more and actually expelled more Democrats, more Republicans and kept people accountable and kept them away from corruption, then, hey, maybe we would get th- more things done in government and we'd actually have a Congress that didn't, uh, and members that didn't just look after their own interests, that looked after uh, the interests of the constituents that they're supposedly supposed to represent. So, Pedro Gonzalez, we're out of time. Always appreciate your commentary. Uh, Thanks so much, and we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
Finally, some good news. Because of you, Preborn has rescued over 44,000 babies this year alone. Right now, thousands of mothers are awaiting birth of their precious babies, and thousands upon thousands of babies are taking their first breath. Since its beginnings, Preborn's Networks of Clinics has rescued over 270,000 babies. That is a miracle. The overturning of Roe versus Wade only made the left more ravenous for the blood of the innocent. So now we need to be more passionate to save babies. Thanks to Preborn, we can do just that. For $28, you can empower a mother to choose life. Once she sees the precious life growing inside of her and hears her baby's heartbeat, she is twice as likely to choose life. And right now, through your match, your gift is doubled. Please give your most generous gift that will go 100% toward life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. We saved hundreds of th- hundreds of thousands of jobs, thousands of businesses. We had our kids in school. He had the kids locked out of school because of the teachers union. That is having a generational impact. California has one of the lowest literacy rates in the country. In the most recent NAEP exam, Florida came in number three for fourth grade reading. California was far, far behind. That was part of Governor DeSantis's argument against Governor Gavin Newsom in the debate last Thursday night. If you missed that between uh, the blue versus red and Governor DeSantis uh, talking about the wins in the state of Florida for conservatism and giving that vision for the future. And uh, Gavin Newsom, who really didn't do anything except push back and, and say, no, your facts are false and, um, and, and just stand up there and, and lie pretty much about everything. Uh, but we're still breaking down that debate. And so joining me now is Ken Cuccinelli, who is the founder of Never Back Down, which is the PAC supporting Governor Ron DeSantis for president. And Ken Cuccinelli is also the former Virginia attorney general and also worked in the Trump administration. And so, Ken, overall, um, I think that uh, that pretty much everyone, even some of the uh, Democrats that I saw in the media afterwards, uh, really gave the win to Governor DeSantis overall. Uh, based on his policy, his substantive responses, and the fact that Newsom uh, really didn't do anything other than sit up there and smile, quite oddly. So, where do you uh, where where do you come down in terms of your overall thoughts about the debate? Yeah, I heard one person say this was a real test of whether um, white teeth and nice hair can win a debate, and um, apparently not. Well, it was worse than that, Jenna, from from the Newsom standpoint. Um, after the debate, it became clear. If you if you watched the, to the end, you saw Sean Hannity ask each of them if they'd stay. This was around 9.40 p.m. Eastern time. Um, if they would stay for another hour. Actually, I don't know what, what where it was 9.40. I was in the central time zone at the time. <laughs> and, um, and they both said yes. Well, in the commercial break, Newsom's wife, like, pulled the plug because it was – such a disaster for Newsom. DeSantis simply destroyed him. I mean, it was like Muhammad Ali fighting a junior high schooler. And, um, uh, you know, there's nothing pretty or elegant about how DeSantis operates. He is a blunt between the eyes, beat you in the battle using a club instead of a gun. Um, And the clubs were facts. 
and he just deploys them mercilessly. He knows them extremely well. His response on abortion, where Newsom was ducking and weaving and and fell back on the late term to, oh, you know, that's those are all desperate situations. I mean, DeSantis rolled in and said, no, over 80 percent of those are elective. I mean, he had his facts down. And and look, a lot of people know that I worked for President Trump in the Trump administration, was proud to do so as the deputy secretary at Homeland Security. Um, but one of the reasons I support DeSantis is that experience. And Donald Trump never prepared much, and he never followed through very much. And so all the things he changed were fairly transient, impermanent, and they're all gone now. They're all wiped away. Um, DeSantis, on the other hand, came so prepared and and is so thorough. People who've been watching his governorship for five years, they have been out to get him in those in his four large media markets for five years. And he schools those reporters. And, um, you know, again, he's not a show horse. He's a workhorse. But can you imagine, Jenna, this is a entertaining one for the morning. Can you imagine if the person on the other side of that stage, as it will be in less than a year, was Joe Biden? Um, I will at least give this to Newsom. He's slick and never lacks for something to say, even if it's not answering the question, irrelevant and rather obviously contrary to everything else going on at the moment. Um, Biden couldn't have strung two of those sentences together. And let's not forget that Joe Biden, despite that fact, beat Donald Trump in the first presidential debate in 2020. And nobody has to believe me on that. Go back and rewatch it yourself if you can stomach it. Um, Ron DeSantis, if Ron DeSantis is the nominee for the GOP, Joe Biden will not debate him. He will not debate him. They'll, they'll say he's mean, he's a racist, all the usual things they say about all of us. And, and he'll say, I won't. I won't, uh, you know, so we're not going to debate him. Um, the real reason they won't debate Ron DeSantis is it would be the bloodiest floor mopping in the history of presidential debates. So, Ken Cuccinelli, you, you raise a lot of fascinating history, and, and I think uh, that that's very well said. And was this, in terms of the Democrats' view, putting up Newsom and having him debate Ron DeSantis almost a test run to see uh, what Ron DeSantis could do? Um, I don't think people who've been watching DeSantis had any doubts about that. Um, we've seen it. He's won all the Republican debates. He hasn't been the the glibest or the you know the the you don't have the little shine off the teeth. I, I'm thinking of a cartoon here, like you do say with Ramaswamy in the first debate. Even though so he got a lot of camera time, but he got crushed by viewers who watched the debate. And you know Nikki has one-liners. But her substance is nowhere near, and her deployment of the facts is nowhere near DeSantis. And um, so I, I don't think it was a test run. I think it was a real opportunity to see the premier conservative in America today represent what the success of our principles implemented in the real world, which is what we've seen in Florida, means against a, a place equally large. These weren't small states the third largest state and the first largest state by population. Um, 
and and California is sort of the test bed for every liberal what you and I would say are bad idea. They think they're great ideas. Uh, but if that's true, then why is Governor Newsom the first California governor in our lifetimes to preside over a decline in the California population as people leave the state, as Governor DeSantis repeated over and over and over? It was Ronald Reagan's old ultimate judgment. People vote with their feet and they have voted on California and it's a disaster. And, and they've and they voted on the Florida. Exactly. Yeah, they have. I mean, there's been more inflow into Florida than anywhere else in the country because it's it's the bastion of freedom, no income tax. I mean, DeSantis cut taxes and lowered Florida's debt by 25 percent. Florida now has the second lowest debt per capita in the country under Ron DeSantis' stewardship. Um, That, given our debt, is the kind of leadership we need in Washington. Yeah, and Ken Cuccinelli, I was so encouraged watching the debate to see that Governor DeSantis made an articulate argument with facts and policy and passion for the overall conservative vision for America's future. And that's what, for me as a values voter, that's what I want. It wasn't a revenge tour. It wasn't relitigating 2020. It wasn't focused on the past. It was not focused on himself. It was focused on where is America heading and we have to have revival instead of decline. And that's what values voters should want in a nominee. Um, But you mentioned abortion and how Gavin Newsom really sidestepped answering Sean Hannity directly on the extremist views of late-term abortion for the Democrats. And he only tried to highlight and point out that Governor DeSantis signed that uh, six-week heartbeat bill and actually tried tried to use um, Donald Trump and, and and his opposition to that and saying that that was a mistake against uh, DeSantis. Where do you think overall um, the issue of abortion is going to be in terms of the general election? And should conservatives be concerned overall with that as maybe um, an issue that isn't going to be favored generally uh, in the election? Well, certainly our side has not handled it well since the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And the the Democrats are going to keep deploying abortion offensively until it doesn't work, just like they did. So back when I was running statewide in Virginia, um, it was your anti-woman. With the advent of Trump in 2016, it's we're all racist. And they just they just call us that. It's the thing they do. So now now it's abortion. And um, and they will stick with it until it doesn't work. And if that's the case, shouldn't we deploy a candidate who shares our basic values and has won under such attack and preferably won by a lot in a challenging environment? Gosh, who has done that? Oh, wait, Ron DeSantis did that in 2022. He defended his life position in the largest swing state in America and was on offense with his opponent and made the case for the heartbeat bill, for the 15-week pain-capable bill, which is really more on the, what you would see at the national level. And, um, and he won by almost 20 points. He won Hispanics. He won women. He won independents. He won Puerto Rican voters, which are the hardest of all the Hispanic subgroups for Republicans to win. 
He won Miami-Dade County by 10 points, where Hillary Clinton had won by 30 over Donald Trump. He helped win the school board back in Miami-Dade County. I say back. I don't actually know if it was back. I don't know if Republicans had ever held it before. He did that. It wasn't just about him. He worked to support the whole team in 2022, and he got bigger legislative majorities. He helped win 29 school board seats. It's not just about Ron DeSantis. It's about accomplishing the goals that he advocates. And um, so he rightfully says, I've accomplished 100% of what I promised when I ran for governor. You compare that to Trump, who promised to balance the budget. In fact, he sent us farther into debt in his four years than any president ever had before in history. It isn't even a close call, actually. Um, He said he'd have Mexico pay for the wall. There's a way to do that. He declined to do it. Um, And the list goes on and on. A lot of Obviously, a lot of things that Trump did were good, but as I said, they were very temporary. Mm, and, and that's the the power of executive orders or the lack thereof rather than yeah. the legislative wins that we've seen in Florida. And, um, and, and Governor DeSantis was very articulate and has been um, throughout his entire governorship and also on the campaign trail about uh, why he stands very ardently for pro-life. And he will uh, if he wins the nomination and ultimately the election. Um, but you mentioned all of the, the promises that he's made to Floridians that uh, – he has accomplished as governor. And one of the promises that he is uh, committed to as president is eliminating four federal agencies, the Department of Education, Department of Commerce, Energy, and also the IRS. And last week, he also pledged to move the Department of Agriculture to Iowa. Um, from your position, having been part of um, the, the DHS, how important is this? And and, and I mean, I, I believe he sincerely would make good on that promise if he became president. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think that, that he, he would do that and, and realize that one of the ways you can make these promises stick is in the budget. You Maybe you don't pass a law that says we get rid of this department, but if you zero fund it, then it's gone effectively. Um, I also, being a lifelong Northern Virginian, should point out to your listeners There's a real reason to move the Department of Agriculture to Iowa, as he said, or to Kansas City or whatever you want to call it. And that's just to get it out of Washington. Um, The governing culture in Washington is um, not like America. And in this day and age, uh, people in the founding era needed to be able to walk to each other's offices to get anything done. We don't need to do that today. And um, and so the pool of people you would draw from out in middle America is totally different than it is in Washington, D.C. And um, and and frankly, inherent in what the governor is saying is that DeSantis will shrink those agencies as well. And um, and that that's a necessary requirement because we've got to balance this budget someday. We've already trapped our children and grandchildren with more debt than they could pay off. Um, And if we get our arms around that, the way Governor DeSantis has gotten his arms around the debt in Florida and and maintaining this one of the smallest governments per capita in the whole country, maybe the smallest, um, that's what we have to get on a path for to get solvent. It's great to talk about beating China and all the things we want to do on the world stage, but all of that is built you know, you used to say built on 
good militaries are built on good economies. But really the way to say it is good militaries are built on good finances um, because economy, you didn't used to be able to print money the way our Congress does. Bipartisan, by the way, you can't blame the Democrats for that. Ask Donald Trump, who printed more than any president before him. Um, that's liquid inflation. Um, so if we get our finances in order, and only someone who's done it before, like Ron DeSantis, is going to do that, that will be a huge strategic advantage over China, which also, by the way, doesn't have its finances and structure in order. And if we get ours back first, um, whatever may happen in the next 10 or 20 years, we will rock it up while they muddle along in lousy financial condition. Mm, yeah, really well said. Takes and, and the governing takes leadership, it, though. And, it, it does. You know. It does. And and I and I want to see leadership going back to, frankly, we the people instead of just we the D.C. bureaucracy. And, you know, having spent a few years um, myself working for the Trump campaign and seeing the culture of Washington, um, it's it's so disgusting. It's so despicable. And you're right, Ken Cuccinelli. It just does not look like uh, the rest of America. And so these types of strategic plans uh, we should want as conservatives, regardless of who the nominee is, we should want these types of policies implemented. And uh, these are great ideas from Governor DeSantis. So Ken Cuccinelli, founder of the Never Back Down uh, PAC, really appreciate your time. You can find Ken Cuccinelli on X at Ken Cuccinelli. And we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Well, the Supreme Court is poised to consider a quadrillion dollar question in a major tax case. This coming from The Hill. The Supreme Court will hear oral arguments in early December on a case that has the potential to broadly reshape the U.S. tax code and cost the government hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. At issue in Moore versus the United States, which is the case title, is the question of whether the federal government can tax certain types of unrealized gains or 
which are property like stocks or bonds that people own, but from which they haven't directly recouped the value. So they don't have direct access to the money the property is worth. So large portions of the U.S. tax code require that income be realized before it can be taxed. But critics say it's inherently wishy-washy as a concept that the courts have just been ignoring for years due to administrative impracticality. So even if the court limits the scope of its decision to the specific tax referenced in the case known as the mandatory uh, repatriation tax, a ruling in favor of the plaintiffs could cost $340 billion over the next decade, according to the Justice Department. So for comparison, that would cancel out all of the extra revenue generated by the $80 billion IRS funding boost and then add $140 billion to the national deficit, which now stands between 26 and $33 trillion, according to various measurements. But experts say the cost could be much higher uh, than that if the court broadens out its definition of what counts as realization, pushing heaps of taxable income out of the government's reach. So this decision could have implications from everything from potential wealth taxes, like the one the Biden administration proposed for billionaires in 2022, to large swaths of the international tax regime. And so this, of course, goes to whether the Supreme Court narrows its opinion uh, versus broadens it op- its opinion. And this will be a very interesting case to follow. So here to break it all down further is our favorite economist on the show, Tho Bishop, who is the content director at the Mises Institute and also Florida man, uh, according to his bio. So always love um, another patriot from my home state now. So Tho, um, beyond the the, the obvious um, just you know basics of the case that I just outlined, uh, what is important for the Supreme Court to do in this case? Well, first and foremost, I think you know I think what we want to see is a Supreme Court that really focuses on the letter of the law rather than these broader political ramifications that's that has played a factor in major cases in the past and continues to play um, a, a factor even with a, a conservative uh, split that we have right now. And you know, as you outlined, you know the the economic ramifications for this are pretty significant. This entire notion, and, and I ruling in favor of it, if, if they defend what the IRS has been doing, the ramifications going forward, I think, are are very significant because you know there is a the, the progressive drumbeat for the wealth taxes, for you know the, the arguments about. Um, uh, you know, the, the left's desire to see more aggression on utilizing this this, unta- this this unrealized gains as a way of justifying further taxation um, of for you know, high income Americans alike. If if I think the Supreme Court rules in favor of keeping it, we might see further escalation um, for future tax treatments in the future if they go. If they strike down what I, what I think should be struck down, um, you know, the it, it, it creates a, a larger issue on the fiscal side of things, um, and which would you know, put more pressure on Congress to do something that they refuse to do, which is, is actually cut spending there. Um, so that once again, the, the Supreme Court is a body that has that should be narrowly interpreting the law as it is written. Um, but I have a feeling it's going to be factoring in these broader political ramifications, uh, which I think is unfortunate for the entire process. 
Yeah, and, and I would agree with you that I hope that they do read this um, within the context of what the tax code requires, which is that income be realized rather than uh, how the federal government has operated and to um, overinflate what uh, what they're taxing uh, now on the American people so that they can. I mean, and we're still, you know, obviously in a budget deficit and all of that. But I hope that the Supreme Court does not factor in the broader implications instead of just doing its job and actually ruling on the merits. And and I think it's interesting, the dynamic that we have currently on the Supreme Court, which um, I and, and other commentators um, have articulated as almost more of a 3-3-3, not really a, a strict conservative majority. Um, it's more three conservatives, three kind of nominal, and then three very uh, leftist liberals. So it'll be interesting to see where, where for example, um, Chief Justice Roberts falls on this issue. And also, I, I think, interestingly, uh, Justice Gorsuch. I would not be surprised if this ends up being more narrowly construed to the uh, the tax code and and what it actually uh, specifically says there. If if Gorsuch actually wrote the majority opinion and kind of went on on a rant, and I think he would he would at least whether he's in the concurrence or the dissent. Um, otherwise, I I would anticipate he'll kind of go on a rant about the um, the administrative state as as he likes to do um, and the administrative impracticalities that have um, that have largely consumed. Um, the U.S. tax code and why you know we really haven't dealt with this issue before. Um, so, in terms of the the bottom line for um, the American taxpayer, um, will there be really any um, specific implications of this more immediately, depending on what the court holds? Well, I think the most immediate response should should it be struck down is. You know, more more debt. You know, I, you know, you're not going to see, I think, a, a, a quick pivot. Um, you know, it's, it's not going to be like a, a, a family budget where you have some unforeseen decline in your your revenue coming in, your income coming in, and therefore you decide not to take that vacation you have scheduled. Um, you know, the federal government has demonstrated no willingness to do it. That's going to you know, create this this kind of ever growing debt problem, deficit problem that we have going on right now. Um, make that even worse. And, and this is one of the problems that we've had in the past is that the Supreme Court has far too often been an accessory, um, you know, has, has been a has been willing to uh, indulge uh, some of the problems that have come from the legis- legislature or the executive branch to avoid creating difficult decisions. Um, and and that's, that's one of my, my concerns being factored into this case. Um, but but really, this just highlights the the much more fundamental problem, um, which is the degree to which Washington is spending. Um, you know, we'll see any attempts to you know it's it's always a lot more difficult to explicitly increase taxes. They always uh, if if they were trying to make up the revenue there, they have to play some sort of of games in the margin um, to try to convince people that these new taxes are not real taxes. They might be new fees. They might be new other aspects of that. It's always a, a, a you know shell game. That uh, DC plays for for this type of of maneuvering, and also making it it will make future wealth taxes uh, more difficult, um, which will you know, really get at the dander of the the Elizabeth Warrens and the AOCs and the Bernie Sanders types, whose you know, go to pivot line whenever you have complaints about the debt or the deficits. Oh well, those billionaires don't pay, you know, don't pay their full fair share. 
or the inability to, if there's a limitation on the ability to, to, to tax unrealized gains, that whole process is going to be a lot harder for that side going forward. I'm speaking with, though, Bishop, who is the content director for the Mises uh, Institute. And interestingly, the U.S. Solicitor General herself is scheduled to argue this case before the U.S. Supreme Court, which, um, according to The Hill, underscores, and I think they're right, how the Biden administration views its importance. And um, certainly, I think uh, the leftists who want the government to to have even more power, more funding to do whatever they want and, and, and to tax Americans even more, um, this is important to the overall leftist agenda. We uh, will likely not get an opinion until early spring uh, because the justices are scheduled to hear this case um, later this month. And um, turning to another issue that I actually spoke with my last guest in the last segment about, though, um, and and the overall problem of the IRS, um, Governor DeSantis has pledged to dissolve uh, and eliminate the IRS um, if he is elected president. This is something in terms of the uh, where the Biden administration has wanted to increase the IRS and uh, Congress now under Republican control does not want to fund those new IRS agents. Um, How important is this overall issue uh, to the general election when we ultimately get to a Republican versus a Democrat in the way that conservatives versus leftists view the entire issue of the IRS? Um, Well, I I think there's there's no more hated government agency out there than the IRS, if, if they would made, make tax day uh, closer to election time, I think that would have a, a tangible uh, <laughs> impact on the way that people vote. Uh, it's, 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 it's short attention spans that Americans get. I, I think uh, that, that, that separation there does not help uh, uh, conservatives from a, a democratic point of view. Um, and of course, you know, the, the IRS, ha- you know, its, it's ability to investigate, infiltrate various aspects of our lives, the, the uh, sword above our heads of uncertainty that comes through the complexity of the American tax code. Um, you know, these are, you know, this is not simply an economic issue. It's a civil liberties issue. It's a size of government issue. Um, and, you know, obviously the, the use of the 60th Amendment as it was first put into place, you know, it's, it's that, that camel in the nose of the tent um, sort of dynamic that has, you know, become something that was sold as originally just a tax on the wealthy that has become some, you know, a, a very, uh, a, many ways, really, a very regressive form of, of taxation in the United States. Um, to the extent that, that Americans care, I, I think the, the, one of the problems we have generally in American politics is kind of a cynicism for big ambitious plans and the ability to follow through. Um, and so if you're going to you know, repeal the IRS, the question would be, then what is the, the alternative that you have? You know, what's, what's the replacement mechanism for financing the government? Is it as um, you know, some Republicans in, in Congress um, have talked about for a while, but there seemed to be a little bit of renewed interest uh, in recent years? Um, you know, if, is it something like moving to a, a sales tax system rather than an income tax system, which would require the reporting Dynamic of that to be much more narrower, you know, it would be, re- it'd be you know, who shop with, it would be real uh, retailers that collect the majority of those taxes, not individual citizens, um, which would you know, gra- greatly reduce the scope of compliance with the tax code, um, which I think would be a very positive thing. Um, obviously, this is a, a model like we have in Florida, where we are very, you know, high, uh, our, most of our revenue comes from sales tax and property taxes. 
So I, I think a because there's no state income tax. A, yeah. Right. And so a sales tax model would be, I think, a, a much stronger, uh, a, a much better form for civil liberties. And it also create if you have something like a fair tax system that has the the um, uh, prebate to help offset the costs for uh, up to the poverty line, you actually create, I think, one of the most finan- uh, fascinating dynamics, which isn't talked nearly enough, is that when you consider the immigration issue, if you have a fair tax, then the tax rate that citizens would pay would actually be lower than the tax rate that immigrants pay, whether they're undocumented, illegal, whether they're legal immigrants, any non-citizen pays a a would pay a higher share because they don't get the prebate there. And I think that's a, one of the, a, an economic solution to dealing with the misincentives that we currently have the immigration dynamic, where you know immigrants are being able to benefit from social programs, citizens are being taxed more for those programs, and so that would actually create an inverse of that dynamic. Um, which I think would be a, a positive uh, step in the broader immigration question as well. And so, you know, I, I'd love to see, um, uh, you know, in, any Republican leadership get serious about dealing with with what is ultimately, you know, one of the biggest drivers of the out of control government generally, uh, which is the revenue power. So why haven't we seen some of these other options like you're articulating? I mean, I mean, any of those other alternatives besides the burdensome income tax code that we have uh, currently for citizens that, that I, I agree with you, nobody likes. Why haven't we really seen any Republicans pursue some of these options? Well, the problem is, is that the, the, the area that benefits most from a complex income tax is Washington. You know, the, the majority of lobbyists in Washington are fighting over some form of tax carve-outs and the like. And so, you know, much of the Washington industry, much much of the, the entire swamp is predicated upon being able to utilize this, you know, incomprehensible um, wave of tax codes and tax regulations. And, you know, and, and, and if you have enough political clout, you know, you, you can get the tax code to, you know, Put your industry, your company, your little cut of the economy in a better place than your competitors in that. And so this ability to be able to leverage and weaponize um, these, these sources of revenue that the government takes um, you know, can greatly benefit. I mean, there's, there's a cronyist element um, that has you – know, that's baked into the way that the federal government operates. And so if you actually try to hit at the root there – you know, if you hit at the root when it comes to the Federal Reserve and, and the, the money creation dynamics, you hit the, the, the root at the IRS and the taxing powers. If you hit at the root of the growth of the administrative state and the extent to which another Supreme Court case coming up, the reconsideration of the Chevron Doctrine, which gave mm-hmm. regulatory authorities expanded powers and rule writing procedures that are you know, that, that do not come from the legislature directly. If you hit at the, the root of federalism, which was meant to be the foundational uh, operating procedure of American yeah, governance. And, 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 and Justice Gorsuch is going to be very interested in, in that one as well, uh, the Chevron uh, deference doctrine, and I'd love to see that uh, that changed completely. But uh, we are all out of time, though. Bishop, really appreciate all of your insights. This is a fascinating uh, issue that I think more Americans need to pay attention to. So we'll be back tomorrow here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. 
I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.